one of the first rules of good communication is to remember your audience. To remember who you're speaking to and then to adjust your message in accordance with your audience. And so I have to be aware of that every time I speak. And then it's kind of overwhelming because I realize that in this room this size with this many people, the audience varies. Now, this letter that we're reading, and we'll be in 1 Corinthians 6 today, this letter that we are reading was written to a group of saints, believers in Jesus Christ. But right now, like what is in this room is not just those who are faithfully following Jesus Christ, but a collection of people that are saints and some that consider themselves to be, and I know we don't like to be categorized, but like um, a seeker, um, a visitor, um, just a spouse of a believer. And so the reason why you're here today is you're not trying to make some great theological statement. You're not trying to, to honor God with all of your life. The truth is, um, some friends invited me and I thought it'd be interesting to come. And so I'm just here to take this in. And we're glad you're here. I'm, I'm grateful for the fact, um, not for some um, noble American mystique, that, wow, the freedom that we have. No, much more than that. I'm just grateful that the gospel goes out and speaks to people from a number of different situations and, and contexts. And the gospel truly is that powerful. It speaks to those of us who've been following Jesus Christ for a really, really long time. It speaks to those who don't even know we're seeking, who don't even know to classify myself as someone who is investigating or trying to figure things out. No, it's... Jim, you're, you're, you're making it more intentional than it really is in my life. And I, I really want you to know that I'm, I'm glad that you're here today, and I'm glad that you're going to have an opportunity to hear what Paul, instructions Paul gave to these saints. But we're getting into some, and it is, it's, it's complicated information, because we're going to be dealing again with sexual immorality. And, uh, and next week we get into chapter 7, we'll spend a couple of weeks there, and chapter 7 begins with that very popular statement, you all know it, it's almost as popular as Jesus wept. Now about virgins, you know that great popular Bible verse, let's talk about virgins again. And so 1 Corinthians 7 continues to talk about marriage, and not just sexual immorality, but kind of God's design for marriage and how it should all work together. And so we're going to be spending a number of weeks in this very intentional topic. And what can happen to Christians, particularly Christian leaders, is we can begin to lose sense of our audience. And so it's good for us to hear the instructions from 1 Corinthians 6, but I just want to make sure that we're all very clear that God's instructions for sexual purity, although may be very beneficial to anyone, whether they follow him or not, they are never what's going to save you. Like you might feel guilty and bad and terrible for some of the sexual mistakes that you have made in your past. But you just correcting that or you just coming to terms with that is not really what God is describing as this new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And I just want to make sure that as a church that we don't just have a stand for marriage or have a stand against sexual immorality. No, what we actually have as a church is like a claim about Jesus Christ. We claim that Jesus is enough. We claim that his presence is really the foundation of all we need. Now, it's really not all we need because God designed us to need so much more than that. But it's a little bit of an overstatement, but that's what we do when we sing, right? It's literally Jesus is, like foundationally all I need. And then once I get that satisfied, then he gives me all these other amazing things. And, and truly, 
If you hear a lesson today that says, yeah, I really shouldn't follow Jesus necessarily, but I probably need to clean up my porn addiction. And that's hopefully not what I say or even give that impression. This text has at its very core the biblical idea that we, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, glad Nicole's on our team, right? Isn't that pretty cool? So that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are committed to him and therefore have a fundamentally different way in terms of how we look at sexual immorality and deeper than that, how we look at like ourselves. You've probably heard this statement. I had to study it a number of years ago, actually, and it reminded me of this text. But if I were to say to you, possession is nine-tenths of the what? Nine-tenths of the law. I don't know if you've ever studied that, and I know there's a number in this room um, that are of the legal persuasion, and so I hope I don't butcher this. Um, Can I just say that I got it off the internet so I know it's accurate, okay? And it sounds really smart, so, you know, you can let me know if I'm I'm getting it wrong, but have you ever wondered what that is, that possession is nine-tenths of the law? It's really more of of, of a proverb or an idiomatic statement. It's more of a way of describing a deeper truth. And that deeper truth goes something like this. In a property dispute, whether that be like real property, like land or just personal property, the things that we own, in the absence of a clear and compelling testimony or documentation to the contrary, meaning evidence, if there's no evidence to the contrary, then the person in actual custodial possession of the property is presumed to be the rightful owner. Does that make sense? It means this. That like this phone right here, if it is in my possession and you don't have any evidence, there's no evidence at all saying that it's not my phone or it's that it's your phone or your mom's phone or somebody else's phone, that we're just going to go off the fact that this phone, since it's in my possession, actually is my property. It is my possession. And therefore, you just can't take it from me. You're not allowed to do that. And, And that's the general idea that... The person who has something is the person who owns something. And so I want to ask you a question and then lead into a deeper thought. Does Jesus have you? Does he have you? Does he, and this is such a strange word for us in our culture, does he possess you? Here's another one, more difficult one. Like, does Jesus own you? Doesn't that just sound like creepy? Can I be honest? Does that not just sound strange? What do you mean Jesus owns me? I'm an American. Actually, I'm not. I'm a Canadian. I'm a Canadian. Like, you can't own Canadians. Can you? Can you own, can you own Americans? This is why that statement that possession is nine-tenths of the law. So if you have it, it's probably a sign that you own it. That's a real question that Paul is asking. Is like, Can the world tell like, who has you? Does it look like, in a sense, that like Jesus has you, or is it confusing to the world? Because the way that you're acting, the way that you're behaving, the way that you're responding, man, I can't tell. Actually, it looks like you own yourself. It's interesting that the Greek word idios, which is where we get the word idiot, are you, are you ready for this? You know what it means? Belonging to one's own self. Like there were those people that were in the military and that was kind of their brand. There were those people that were in the medical field and that was their brand. There were those people that were in the trade guilds and that was kind of the people they associated with. And then there were idiots. And they were people that were, um, that were uh, 
on their own. And, and we wear that as a badge of honor now, don't we? Uh, and it is, it's confusing. In the American slash Western culture that lifts up these, these ideals of freedom and rights and independence. Do we not? And what does the gospel say? That you don't have any rights, that your freedoms are found in Christ, and that you really don't have independence, but there's a dependency upon God. Can you understand like, why you're so confused? Why I'm so confused? So is this my life or is it not? And the answer is, it's not your life. Like It's not your life anymore. Not when you give it to Jesus like we just saw. It's just not your life anymore. And Paul is going to presume that. And let me give you this, this concept I want you to hear is that ownership is actually ten-tenths of the gospel. If possession is nine-tenths of the law, then ownership is ten-tenths of the gospel. It's what it's all about. That you are bought with a price. And that's why the analogy, um, going back to the baptism, I'm so grateful Nicole decided today because it fits so well. Actually, it fits well in any sermon. But think about it. It literally is, and now, Nicole, you have died to yourself and it is raised to walk a new life. Like, it's not your old life. That's dead. And now it's this new life, which is Christ in you. This is, this is why baptism becomes such a powerful, not just, um, not just metaphor, but experience. I told Nicole to plug her nose, but she didn't. And I could just see, you, what was that? You forgot? You regret not plugging your nose. Now that's funny. But when, literally when she came up, I could see it in her eyes. And I've seen this so many times before. It was like, I just want to, I just want to remember this experience. Right? Why? Because what's going to happen to Nicole, because you know, you've been there, is you're going to want to dredge up that old you and try to walk around in that old you again. And Paul says, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Let me give you a couple of verses that just kind of point this out before we get to 1 Corinthians. Acts chapter 20, verse 24 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And Paul says this as he is getting ready to head to Jerusalem. He believes he's going to die there. And his friends just think death is like the worst thing in the world that could happen to him. And so they're like, Paul, you can't go, you can't go, you can't go because you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. And what Paul has to basically say is, I don't think you understand like my life. And so Paul says this. I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself. Like, I don't look at my life the way that you look at my life. I don't look at my circumstances the way you look at my circumstances. I look at my life as though it's completely folded into the life of Jesus Christ. And I'm not being foolish or idealistic. I'm telling you, I believe my life is in the hands of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I'm going to go wherever, do whatever, because my life is his life. That's what he believes. And so he sets his mind to Jerusalem, not worried. He actually says, the Holy Spirit tells me everywhere I go, prison and hardships await. But that's not my concern, because my life is not mine. Now, where did he get that idea from? Well, it seems like he got it from Jesus. Now, it's interesting. You would think, well, Jesus. Now, he definitely thinks his life is his own. But if you go to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, we're to have this mind. It says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Literally, that's a complicated word. It means that if I were to hold on to this, it would feel like I was robbing somebody of something. It's not just to be clung to desperately, which is what we do with our lives, isn't it? What we do with our freedoms. That's why it's like, I, I can't let go of this freedom. I can't let go of what I believe i got to do. I can't let go of my identity. I can't let go. I just have to hold on to it. I'm going to get mad and angry, and I'm going to fight about it. Why? Because it's all that I know. It's all that I have. 
And Jesus didn't hold on. Are you ready for this? Jesus didn't hold on to his, um, his divine pre-incarnate, meaning before he put on flesh, right? Before Christmas. He did not hold on to that selfishly. It says he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or robbed or held on to, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant being born in human likeness and being found in human likeness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how Jesus viewed his life. Jesus viewed his life as something that would be done for the glory of God, his Father. And the, 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 the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit together just desired to be glorified by redeeming the creation that rebelled against him. And so if you want to know, like, where did Paul learn to treat his body that way? The answer is he watched Jesus. And Jesus gave of his body for his people. So there's an intentionality. It's, what's interesting is, is that the Bible doesn't actually teach that our bodies don't matter. No, they're not to be worshipped. I know we do. A lot of vanity in terms of, man, I don't want to get old and just ask a woman her age. You'll know how wrong that is. Just you want, you want to hide. You don't, I just don't want to grow. I don't want to tell you how old I am. I don't want to tell you. It's not a woman thing. I don't want to tell you how old I am because once I tell you that I'm 49 because I'm 49, you're just going to, he's almost 50 and then he's dead, right? Like, where do we get that from? Because we're holding on so closely to this idea of our, of our bodies. And that's too much. But to just discard it? Ah, oh, it's our body. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care about our bodies. That's not a biblical idea. God gave us our bodies for a reason and for a purpose. And so you're going to see in the, in the text this morning, beginning in verse, chapter, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul is going to make a very bold statement that governs this, this basic idea In these first few verses that we're going to look at, Paul says this, not all things are helpful for me. Meaning that that mindset that we have, which is, can I do that? Am I allowed to do that? Is there anything wrong? am Am I allowed to do whatever I want? Is this my body? Can I do whatever I want? Paul says, you're already asking the wrong question. I mean, how many of you have walked into a job interview and your first words were, what one thing do I have to do to keep this stupid job? Like, well, what do I have to do? Can you give me just one thing so you don't fire me? Because I really don't want to get fired, but I really don't want to work hard. Any, any of you walk into a job interview like that? Probably not, right? You actually come more in with the attitude of, hey, I'm here to work. I'm a hard worker. What, what one thing is a problem with you? I work too hard. That's my one weakness. Right? That's my greatest strength. My greatest weakness are the same thing. I'm, I'm amazing. That's it, right? I'm devoted and I'm dedicated. We don't play the game of what's the one. You don't walk into a relationship and say, hey, what one thing do I have to do to keep you from walking out on me because this is already so hard? No, it's I love you and I'll swim oceans for you and I'll I'll jump to the moon and back if I have to. It's like I'll do anything. And yet when it comes so much with our relationship with God, we're we're always trying to figure out like how how can I get away with this and how far can I go and how little can I do? That's like a fundamentally broken way to look at any relationship, whether it's our work relationship or our our, our interpersonal relationships. And yet when it comes to our relationship with God, it's fundamentally broken. And Paul gets to the very core of it. And he says, listen, although a lot of things are allowed, but they're really not beneficial. And therefore, I'm not going to be a part of it. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me. He's going to be talking about food, which is a big deal in their culture. 
Food is what separates people from clean and unclean, particularly within the Jewish community. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, declares all food clean. And the Apostle Paul is going to say, listen, like I'm no longer going to play by even worldly standards of clean or unclean. But Paul makes it very clear that although although all things are lawful for me, not all things are helpful. And all things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. Paul's not asking for what one thing can I get away with or how many things can I do. Paul's asking a question, how can Jesus Christ be glorified in the way that I'm living my life? Not what one thing do I need to do to be saved, but how many things can I do to be the complete person that God has called me to be? Paul's not playing this game. Paul is actually living a life of complete surrender. He goes on to say in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So God gave us bodies to respond to the physical world around us. And God will destroy both one and the other, meaning there is a temporary nature for these things. The body, he says, is not meant for sexual immorality. So unlike food, which is you can eat anything that you want, like when it comes to our physical bodies and our sexual interactions, that's not the case. It's not a whatever you want to do. And he continually says that our bodies are not our own. And here's how he describes this. The body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us by by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And, and, And that's where you have to just stop and go, actually, I don't think I knew that. Like, I don't know if I really understood that. If you think about it, it's, it's a rather profound concept to say that literally, like, the body that I have right now is Jesus' body. Think about how many questions can be answered by that, 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 that simple statement, your bodies are members of Christ. Think about how many debates we have in our culture about what we're allowed to do with our bodies. And, and this says... Our bodies are members of Christ. Question, this this isn't one of those moments probably where you raise your hand or speak about verbally, but I definitely want you to wrestle with this. Like, do you believe that? Again, for those of you that are saints, those of you that have united with Christ, those of you who have experienced his grace and forgiveness, those of you that are committed to following him, do you recognize that the body that you walk around in, the body that you enjoy, is actually like Christ's body? I know that might sound like mysterious and kind of like weird, but the Bible actually believes that it's true. That in some profound way, and I think it has within it the mysterious, that the body that I now have is actually lived not for my own pleasure, but for Christ. And so he asked this question, shall I then take the members of Christ, this body that he has given me, and make them members of a prostitute? And then one of the bold statements that you actually see in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians is this, just two Greek, Greek words, meganoitai, which means literally, may that never come to pass. May that never happen. Like, that's the worst thing. It's unimaginable. Will I take my body and use my body, which is Christ's body, will I use it by joining it to a prostitute? Will I use it by selling it for my own gratification for a little bit? Will I take Christ's body and do that? Imagine, and this is kind of where it gets complicated. Imagine, like if you had Christ's body, or let's just say Christ's presence. Wouldn't you be more careful about like the things that you do, particularly the context is, it's not the only context, but the context of 1 Corinthians 6 is sexually. 
I have a number of people, and I, I get it. I've, I've, I've been there. I am there. I, I get temptation. I understand it. I, I get this sometimes. Yeah, you know, we just couldn't control ourselves. I like to point out, to be honest with you, you've had no problem controlling yourself when you came into my office. I've never, in the middle of like premarital counseling, just said, hey, can you guys stop that? It's a little awkward. Never had it happen. I've never had somebody say, yeah, we went over to my mom's and dad's and, you know, we're just having dinner at the table and the next thing you know, we start going at it. We just can't control ourselves. No, we can actually control ourselves. Like, we know what is appropriate and what's not appropriate, don't you? You know. Let's not lie to one another. We know. That's why we have to hide. That's why we have to close doors. That's why we have to arrange. That's why we have to deceive to live like that. Because it's not going to be out in the open. Would you do that if Christ were present? Can I tell you my answer? I never would. If I genuinely believed that Christ was present, I would never give in to the temptations in this area, ever. And so I need this reminder. I would never do that. So since that's true, I need to remember that. Look at verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one, one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's from the Genesis narrative, that God has a purpose. This is why sex isn't bad. It's what makes it so complicated. It's not that sex is bad or it is wrong. It's just that in the wrong context, it can be really painful and dangerous and fun and short-lived and leave a long-lasting memory, and it can feel like, like abuse, and it can feel like being taken advantage of, and even though there was consent, I still now have regrets. Yep. Like, God designed this. It's fascinating to watch the world so confused about this. It used to be that as long as you were in love, that's all that mattered. Now consent is like the big thing. It's interesting, I heard the statement from James Dobson a number of years ago. He would give his daughter a dime, which kind of dates the, 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 the illustration, right? He'd give his daughter his dime and he would say, listen, like when you're on a date, if a boy wants to do something with you on that date, you just give him this dime and you put it in, a, have him call me on the payphone, have him call the house and ask me, say, hey, this is what I want to do to your daughter. And if, 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 I, if I say it's okay, it's okay, right? He says, yeah, I've never had a boy call me, right? Somehow you know, I doubt if dad's going to say yes thought about with this illustration like if if your body is Jesus's but before you do anything with it why don't you get his consent before you look at that www whatever that website is like why don't you ask hey Jesus is this what we need to be doing right now before you linger in the lust is this what I need to be doing before you continue that texting conversation before you continue kind of hanging out in that one area of the office because, man, he just makes me feel so good. He gets me. And then I go home and I get frustrated with my husband and I begin to dream about this. And it just asks, is this Jesus what we want to do with our body? Hey, what are we doing Friday night? We're going to the bar. Hey, why don't we ask, hey, is this what Jesus wants us to do with our body? Like, what if consent really is a big deal? But what if your body's not your own? Then consent is not yours to give. Do you see how simple this can actually be? Paul keeps pointing this out. Do you not know the two will become one flesh? I find it so fascinating in our culture today. And I guarantee you it's crept into the church. 
The biggest thing is no longer having sex with one another. That's kind of the presumed. Watch the TV shows and the movies. And, and these people are in a relationship for a year and a half. They've been having sex since the first date. And then all of a sudden, just in this moment, they blurt out, they blurt out I love you! And it's like, whoa, 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 where did that come from? We've been having sex every day for a year, but what do you mean you love me? I'm not ready for that level of intimacy. Isn't that true? You've seen it, right? Can you tell? Like, this is, they're looking for it. Like, we want that level of intimacy. We desire it. We need it. God made us for it. And and what if we just went back and said, listen, like, the way God has made this, and the two will become one flesh, he says in verse 17, but he was joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. And therefore, we have a sense of peace and purpose that gives us, gives us a level of intimacy. You know, there's one of the songs that we sang, and it actually said this, your presence is the love I need. God, your presence is the love I need. See, what's happening in our culture is so often we still have this love need, and so it's not uncommon at all that particularly younger people get into this this, this, this mode of I can feel loved if I give myself physically to somebody else. The number of instances where, hey, I'm ready to take this relationship to the next level, which is I really would like to just play with your body. That's what they mean by that. They're not wanting to get married. I just, I kind of want to feel good about myself for a while, and your body, when I touch it, makes me feel good about me. And Paul is going, like, this is fundamentally broken. This is fundamentally not the way. Now, in their culture, prostitution or just manipulation or exploitation was the only way to deal with it. But in our culture, hey, we've so loosened the strings of expectation, and then we're dealing with the repercussions of it. Because why? Because we all think, it's my body, I can do what I want. And Think of the amount of pain and hurt that you have the regret that you are still dealing with. And Jesus so wants to free you from that. Jesus wants to free you from the burden of trying to figure out what to do with your body. And so he has a plan and he has a purpose for you. And when we are able to say, like Jesus, like your presence is the love I need. And now all of a sudden I'm able to, in the right situation, give myself fully to the woman I love in the way that God has designed it. Like I'm able to do that. And by the way, even if we were to have problems in our marriage and I become sexually tempted when I'm satisfied in Jesus Christ, I don't need someone else to fill that need. Like I can lean into him. I know what you're thinking. Man, that just sounds way too like um, idealistic. All of this is. (laughs) Can I just, just be clear? Like if, if we don't want to deal with the idealistic truths of the scripture, then we can just go back and live any way that we want. Isn't that what made the mess in the first place? So Paul says, you are not your own. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Now, by the way, that's one great verse. There are others that actually confront the biblical, or the, the, the wrongly confessed idea that all sins are equal. 
I mean, we preached about this a number of years ago, and so many of us from the congregation went, what are you talking about? I thought all sins were the same. No, the Bible actually doesn't say that anywhere. It does like to point out that this sin is really bad, and this sin is really, really, really bad. Paul says right here, every other sin you commit, lying, that's not against your own body. But when you do this one, it is against your own body. And you know this is true, because if you said to Andrea, hey, Andrea, Jim lied to you today, she would be mad. But if you said to her, hey, uh, Jim's been sleeping around on you, she doesn't go, oh, I'm mad. It's a whole different response. So you know that to be true. What does Paul say? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How do you do that? But one of the things I want us to just remember is that there can be a way in which we can just say, hey, how do we, how do we get the discipline? How do we learn to say no? And, and, and by the way, I think it's great to have sermons on we need to flee, like literally like Joseph, like leave your coat and just run away. Like you need to just run from a lot of sexual temptations, and I believe all of that to be true. But fundamentally, what the Bible actually teaches is not that this is a matter of, uh, of control. Here's how I worded it. Sexual purity is not as much about self-control as it is about complete surrender. See, what, what satisfies me and cures me and prepares me and helps me with the temptations that I personally face is not just somebody coming up and giving me that great, great spiritual advice. Keep your pants on! Have you heard that? Just kind of that... Hey, come on, be, 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 be self-controlled. Like the Bible doesn't just give us that. It actually gives us a, a different way of looking. It says, like, do you not know that your body is Christ? Like, is he not enough for you? Like, do you not recognize like what you have in Jesus? And, and that's why moms and dads, I, I think it would be really good to go back and to teach our young people not just about like sexually transmitted diseases and you don't want to be a 16-year-old parent, but I'm telling you, like Jesus is enough. And I'm here to remind you, even when you make mistakes, when you sin, that when we confess our sins, that Jesus will forgive us and you don't need to stay in it. So many of us stay in broken, sexually immoral context because we have no idea that we will ever be able to feel whole again. And so we just stay in the brokenness. And Jesus says, come to me. I'm here to forgive. I'm here to heal. I'm here to make you white again. I'm here to make you like clean again. I'm here to give you a new life again. I so desire that for you. And when we remember truly that that's what Jesus does and that's what God intends, then I actually don't have to spend all my time giving all of the warnings and all the, do you know how society is not getting it? Because society will already be looking to us and saying something is different. You know, one of the things that we love to do here at Sunnybrook is not just preach against things, although we're not against preaching against things. But the Bible really gives us something to be for. And one of the things that we are clearly for is marriage. And so it's not by accident that we want to close our service this morning by just sharing with you, the congregation, a whole group of people, you can kind of see them in the audience wearing red shirts, 
Um, because this, this issue of sexual immorality um, is something that happens not only, hear me, not only in the marriage context, but we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 7 next week that God has given us marriage to deal with a lot of the sexual energy and temptations that we have. So how can we have healthy marriages? And so this time I want to invite those from our marriage ministry to come forward as we um, set apart these couples to help us as a congregation to know what it actually looks like for there to be a healthy, thriving um, uh, a marriage that we might want to, uh, to, to learn from, uh, a mentoring relationship. So this time I'm going to kind of hand it off to Sharon Doherty.